Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to see what you would have us to see and about your faithfulness and your love for us. And we just ask you to guide and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 14. Uh, last week we were covering the, the battle, the first big battle of uh, Saul against the Philistines. And we kind of left it off that he had 600 men left that had not abandoned, abandoned him. Uh, and so in chapter 14, we continue on with the story of this battle. They're outside of, just north of Mishpah, uh, Mish, Mishif. And it came to pass upon the day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man that bore his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree that is, it, that is in Mikron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. All right, so we're going to look at this section here. Um, Jonathan is a very bold individual. We're going to see this over and over about him. He stands up to his dad when nobody else will. Uh, he's getting, he's talks to his armor bearer and says, hey, you know, let's you and I go up against the garrison. <laughs> now remember, a garrison is a fortified <laughs> place that the military are staying at. And he says, well, why don't we just go up there and see what God's going to do? Uh, I don't know if he's really intending to go fight it or just look at it or what, is, what his intention is at this point. Uh, we're going to find out that he goes to fight them. <laughs> but you know, he's an adventurous man. He seems to live for adventure. He's, he's willing to, and he's a very godly man, we're going to see through this, you know, through this time and later on. But, he, but it says he didn't tell his father what he was doing. You know, he just went up to the garrison, didn't tell anybody. And then it says that, Saul was tearing at the uttermost part of Gilead. And remember, we, we, he camped at Gilead. Now he's as far on the other side of Gilead, Gilead to still be in Gilead. Uh, and Mishpah is between him and where the Philistines are at. And so he is like as far away as he could be without. And then it references this pomegranate tree in Migron. <laughs> Who knows where this pomegranate tree is, but apparently when Saul, when this book was written at the time that Samuel's book was written, it was well known. Uh, I don't know if it was a large tree where people could camp under, you know, on a plane or all by its little lonesome self. Uh, you know, who knows why, uh, kind of like the California big the redwood forest where you have that really big redwood where they've Drill, drilled the hole through, you know. If you just, if you refer to it, you know, years, you know, centuries from now, and say, well, you know, you go to the redwoods, <laughs> you go to the redwood. <laughs> Nobody would really know what you're referring to, years and centuries and millennia later. But at this point, they knew, they knew where, what they were referring to, and then it reiterates that Saul had about 600 men with him. And remember, Saul had gathered 3,000 men with him, and because the Philistines had gathered, as they said, an army innumerable, and Samuel did not come to offer the sacrifice. The people started disappearing every night. Every night they would wake up in camp and there would be less people in the army than the night before. 
but all, he's down to about 600, and that stayed consistent. That, you know, remember, we had about three or 600 that went with him when he first became king. I think these are his, his bodyguard. These are the guys that say, we're going to follow Saul no matter what. Kind of like when David starts running, running around, he ends up with several hundred people that are his core. They grow, and they shrink, and they grow, and they shrink, but it's that core. This is Saul's core. This is his bodyguard. These are the guys that when he goes to battle, he knows that these guys are going to stand up with him. Even if they go into a losing battle, they're going to be the ones that are hanging out with him. And then it mentions that the priest is there. Okay? And it starts out, Ahai, uh, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. Now, do you, anybody know what Ichabod means? It means the glory has departed. I cannot believe that Phineas... You know, that would be the name for his son, Ichabod. But is, remember who, do you remember who named Ichabod? Does anybody remember a month and a half, two months ago? <laughs> when Eli and his sons died all on the same day, his, his wife had the baby and she said, his name is Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. I'm referring to her son and, and her father-in-law. So the name is there, but there's also a name used of derision. If God abandons a place, it says that Ichabod is written upon, upon that place that God has departed. All right? So when you'll never read the story of the, the headless horseman again with a guy named Ichabod. His name is Glory has departed. Uh, and it says the priests are with him. So Saul is doing some things right. Okay? They were, uh, they were making offerings. They were trying to get the people to stay, bring God's glory in, and they were going to God and saying, shall we fight? And here we see Jonathan is going to just step up. Now, it doesn't appear that Jonathan went to the priest to ask them what to do. It doesn't appear that he even prayed. He just says, I'm going to go. And uh, verse 4. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison... There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other, and the name of the one was Bozeth, and the name of the other was Shinath, and the forefront of one was situated northward over against Michmish, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto them, Do all that is in your heart turn you. Behold, I am with you according to your heart. All right. So it says he's going through this passageway. And again, this passageway is marked by two sharp rocks, uh, pointed rocks is what it literally you know, says. Uh, so there were some kind of column type rock that was in there. They were good. Yeah, these were big rocks. Like, to get a name, these weren't just little rocks that, oh, we're going to name a little rock down there. Uh, no, these were well, bigger than boulders. Well, these are some kind of, I'm thinking more like the rock as you're going down into Bullhead City that, you know, looks like the finger being stuck up, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's something that people saw and said, this is recognizable. Uh, if you're f uh, familiar with the uh, uh, 
famous trail across the United States, uh, the Oregon Trail, where they had the chimney rock. You know, huge, huge, more than one rock, but you saw it from hundreds of miles away, and it's like, okay, that's where we're going. I think that's the kind of rock that's being described here. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're saying, and they name the one Bozeth, which means surpassingly white or glistening. So this was not just a white rock. This one was obviously something of a white color. The sun shone off of it. And, this is, and then the other one was Shina, which means thorny. Thorny. Uh, so it must have had all kinds of thorn bushes around it. So, or had something that made it resemble a thorn bush you know, from it. So these rocks in this passageway were ones that had names and it throws them out there. Part of the reason that we like these places, even though we don't know what they are, is it shows the veracity of the word of God. Because people would have said, you know, well, we know where those rocks are, and they're, and they're thousands of miles away. You know, they're, they're, they didn't know what they were talking about. In this case, people looking at it said, okay, we know exactly, we know what passage Jonathan was going through. All right? And so this is the great news about the Bible, is the Bible puts so many details in. <laughs> it might be, but rocks also give you milestones and stuff when you're on trips. Well, there's no ever no two rocks alike either. But uh, but even in Acts, there's all these different uh, nautical markers and everything, and everybody's going, well, maybe these places don't exist. And the more they've researched them, the more they found out, yes, this is exactly the passage, and is and it is this deep, and it is there is a passageway here that they would have gone on, and they would have summered in this port, or you know, and so God puts details in so that people can't come back later on and say, and well, these were just put in there for, you know, just names put in there so that somebody could try to figure, you know make it look like. No, every time they look for these things, they find them. And it's wonderful thing about it is that God puts this intense detail in the word to show us the accuracy and the truthfulness of the word. And so they come out of this and they get to the, and it, and it comes out and Jonathan said to his honor, let's go up to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now this is, this is Jonathan, there's two men here. One soldier and one young man, they say, I would say if, if he was in his teens, it would be lucky because armor bearers usually weren't that old. This was a man that carried a sword, carried his armor, carried his helmet. Uh, when he needed it, he was the one that ran and got it. So he was a young, young man, hopefully hoping one day to be a, you know, soldier or a knight. Uh, and... I love this, what Jonathan says in verse 6. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Do you see the faith that Jonathan has here? Well, maybe the Lord will let us take this garrison because it's all God's fight anyway, and God can use two of us as well as he could have the 600 with my dad or, or the 3,000 that we started with. And I'm sure he's thinking about Gideon. Or even going all the way back to Moses, one man against the entire na empire of, of Egypt, well, one man and God, <laughs> you know, against the entire empire of Egypt. And Jonathan's saying, yeah, hey, maybe God, maybe God will let, let us be, this, be his tool. 
This is something that we need to be challenged in our own life. God wants to use us. Usually the only thing that stops us from being used is we won't step out in faith you know, because we don't trust God. And we say we do, you know, we, we will say all the right things, but most of the time when it comes right down to it, most of us don't trust God completely. And we're not even going to a garrison to fight an entire, an entire uh, garrison of people. Uncircumcised is anybody that's not a Jew that was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay. I thought that's what it was. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. The uncircumcised is anybody who's not a Jew. Okay. And uh, so he's saying, you know, these guys aren't Jews. God, they're not on God. They're not God's people. They're not his. Maybe God will put them into our hands. This is quite a bold statement from Jonathan. Because yeah. he's the only one, one of, remember, there's only two people in his, with a sword in all of Israel. That's him and his dad. Okay. So if nothing else, they could lose one sword. They could lose half their armory. <laughs> uh, but uh, we look in here and he says, and his armor bearer has almost just as much faith. He goes, whatever you want to do, let's go do it. I'm with you. You, you want to go up there? You want to be crazy and go fight these guys? I'm right behind you. <laughs> Well, the garrison before that, yes, in the chapter before, they, yeah. they had taken a garrison, but that was with his thousand men. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had, he had support on that one. <laughs> this time it's just him and God and, and his armor bearer. Uh, but, you know, Jonathan has confidence in God. That God is going to do something. And this is something we need to have a good challenge on and say, God, what is it that you want to do? All through history, all through the biographies we read, all through the Bible, God uses few people to accomplish great things. And through the times that I've looked, he's used very unusual people <laughs> to accomplish big things. And you look at him and say, God, you, you, want, it, you want this person to be in charge? You know, remember Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press. Hard to thresh wheat in the wine press when there's no wind that's going to blow the shaft away. And the angel comes and says, Hail, you valiant man of Israel. <laughs> and that's exactly what you know, Gideon was probably looking around like, uh, Who are you talking to? There's just, just me in here, me and you in here. And by the way, who are you? You know, there's just you and me in here. Who are you calling a valiant man of Israel? We look at a, a, Sam, a Samson. Man, if you want to say somebody who should never have been used by God, Samson was your man. Couldn't keep the vow that God said was going to be his. He's touching dead things all the time and uh, you know, sleeping around with all the women that he could find, and God still used him. He did more bad than good. <laughs> well, by, by human standards, but God used him. God's grace uses the most unlikely people. Now, John is not the most unlikely person <laughs> that's out there, but it's still just him against however many men are in that garrison. Again, a garrison might have had as few as 20, as many as a couple hundred, uh, but still, one against 20 or one against a couple hundred is not, a, not great odds. Uh, and the armor bearer is saying, okay, John, whatever you want to do, wherever you want to go, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you wherever you want. And, and all leaders do need those people that are with them, that are going to say, yes, I'm, I'm behind you. I'm supporting you. I may not be in the middle of the battle with you, but I'm, I'm supporting you. And 
I love Jonathan because even when we get done, Jonathan deserves to be king after his father because of his godliness, because of his righteousness, because of his, his desire to follow God. And yet we're going to see later on that he's willing to give it to David because David was chosen by God. The submission of Jonathan was, was amazing. We're also going to see where, where Saul gets after Jonathan because Jonathan is on David's side and he says, you fool, he's going to take the kingdom from you. And Jonathan's, you know, like, well, I know that. But he's my friend and I want, I want what God wants. And this is where we need to be as Christians. You know, are we willing when, when God is, says we're ready for somebody else to say, okay, God, whatever you want. I've had this happen to me in many cases where somebody says, well, I think I can do this job better, and I'll be my guest. You know, you know, if you think you can do this job and the church is going to say that, yes, you can, be my guest. You can have it. I'll go do something else. It's not like there's, not a, there's any end to the things that need to be done for the kingdom of God. If somebody wants a job that I've got, <laughs> okay, go do it. Now, make sure it's God's call, but you know, if that's what God wants, I'm willing to go do something else. That's the kind of man Jonathan was. God, you're going to use me, and when you're using me, I'm going to be, I'm going to be standing strong for you, but when, it, when my time is done, I'm ready to step down. John the Baptist, he must increase so that, uh, I must decrease so that he can increase, talking about Jesus. He says, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. My job is to just tell you that he's coming. We see this over and over in the scriptures where people said, whoever, you know, God's done with me, <laughs> hand it over. And we need to always be in that humility place because, number one, it's all God anyway. And God can use anybody he wants, and he can move us on to anything else. The hard thing, though, is, is to move on. It really is not an easy thing to move on, especially if you've poured your heart and your soul into something and you've, you've built it up and you've done things with it, and then all of a sudden God says, okay, it's time for you to move on. Uh, God, you know, there's a lot, lot invested in here. God says, it's time for it to go. We're going to give it to somebody else. But that is ultimately what we need to do as God's people. Be ready that if God has us to move on, we move on. And the one thing that people need to learn, and even, even in the non-Christian world, nobody is irreplaceable. Now, some people are harder to replace than others, but nobody is irreplaceable because when that guy dies that you think is irreplaceable, the, the business usually run, keeps going. may not run as smoothly or as well at, at initially, but it still goes. In God's kingdom, the only one that's ir irreplaceable is God himself, and he's not going to be replaced. He'll replace different people in it, different parts in it. And Jonathan's the type of man that he recognizes, I'm under God's authority. I'm going to do what he wants. And when, when my day is over, <laughs> it's over. And Jonathan never intended to die, but God took him out when Saul died. He took out the entire family just so there wouldn't be a civil war. Now, Jonathan would have gladly surrendered to David and given everything up to David, but the people probably would not have surrendered it as easily. So Jonathan had to die because of Saul's disobedience. And this is a sad thing because sometimes other people suffer that shouldn't, be, shouldn't suffer and don't need to suffer because of somebody else's sin. It happens in, in countries, in churches, in families, uh, and, and just in relationships at times. People suffer because of other people's bad decisions. And that's not a good thing, but it is 
the consequence of living in a sinful world. So Jonathan gives, gives his plan to, to his armor bearer, verse 8. And Jonathan said, Behold, we shall pass over against these men, and we will discover ourselves to them. If they say unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we shall stand still in our place, and will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up unto us, then we will go up before the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and, shall, and it shall be assigned to them, done to us. All right, here's his bold plan. We're going we're gonna to come up on the road on the, at the bottom of the hill, and we're going to come out of hiding you know, discover, we're going we're gonna to show ourselves to them. And he goes, if they tell us to stay there, then we're not going up. <laughs> if they tell us to come up, look at this. His plan was, if they tell us to come up, God's giving them into our hand. We're going to win. Now, humanly speaking, they're probably going to tell them, come on up. You know, let's, let's teach these upstart, you know, Hebrews a lesson. But, you know, his plan is, you know, if they tell us, if God doesn't want us to go up, he's going to tell us, He's going to have them tell us to stay where we're at. If he wants us to take this, this, take this they're, going to, they're going to boastfully tell us to come on up. Yeah. What faith does he have? You know, it's just a matter of, you know, it's an amazing thing to me. These guys that have such faith in God, and their lives are in danger. I mean, I've never had to put my life in danger yet. I've had to put reputation on danger uh, on, on the line or, or my pride on the line but Jonathan is putting his life on the line he's the prince if they get hold of him they're going to make you know if they capture him he's valuable valuable commodity to, for trade or just to kill and, and hang up on a post in triumph saying you know we killed the prince either way you know this is a pretty big deal I do not believe his father would have let him do this his father would have said, are you nuts? Get back here. <laughs> you know, we don't have an army. And, you know, uh, doesn't seem to have as much faith as his son does. And it's not as godly, even though there's times when he puts a show around him. You know, he's got the priest with him. Uh, he's put a show on. How many people put a show on of how godly they are? Let me show you how good I am. You know, I'm going to go to this party, and I'm not going to take a drink. Everybody's going to think that I, I'm so good, and then they go home and they end up, end up drinking themselves to sick you know, because it's not time for the show. You know, I'm not going to curse in front of other people, but man, if you see them at home. You know, this is one of the things I've heard from different kids over the years. You know, you, if you knew my parents at home, you, you know, don't tell me. I don't want to know. You know. I don't want to know what your parents are like at home. That's between them and God. But you know... This is Saul was that showman. I got the priest here. We got the altar here. We're, we're, we're calling on God. Jonathan's actually out there saying, God, you know, I'm waiting for you. What are, you gonna, what, what are we going to do here, God? Stepping out in faith. One of the hardest things to do is to know when to step out in faith and when, we, when we're looking at it as being presumptuous. And, they, they, and Jonathan here is kind of covering both bases. He goes, if they tell us to come up, God's given them. If he tells us to stay down here, we're going to get out of here as quick as possible because God isn't, isn't wanting us there. Uh, we need to be willing to step out every once in a while and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And maybe even do something just like this. God, if, th if this happens, then I'm going to go forward. If this happens, then I'm not going to do it. You know, Gideon did that, of course. And now Gideon knew better. He'd already been told directly by God what to do and knew what he was supposed to do. 
And remember, he said, okay, I'm going to put out this, this sheepskin out here, this fleece, and, you know, uh, God, if it's dry and the ground is wet, I'm going to know that, that it's you. And that, and woke up, but the fleece is dry, the ground's wet. He goes, okay, go one more time. This time, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. You know, and the ground's dry and the fleece is soaking wet. Okay. We don't want to be careful when we do something like this that we're really saying, God, I'm going to, if you say something, I'm going to listen to it. But a lot of times it's just get out there and step out in faith. Do what he's asking you, what you think he's asking you to do. The more we get in touch with God, the easier it is to hear his voice. The more I pray, the more I'm in, my, in the word, the more I'm with God's people, the more I know when I hear God's voice. When I'm not doing all those things, I think it's real hard to hear God's voice. Because all of a sudden it's really confused in there. My mind is giving me all this stuff of the world and the flesh, and I'm not really listening to his voice. And I hope you all have been in a place where you spent more and more time with God, and you, the decisions for God become easier and easier. Well, you know what, God, I don't need to lay a bunch of fleeces out or anything because you and I are so close that I'm, I know your voice. And I kind of use the old, the old adage, and everybody here, here is old enough except for the, the boys over there. Back in the old days when you had to pick up the phone to know who was calling, <laughs> Okay, no caller ID. no IDs on it. You, you didn't know who was calling before you even picked the phone up. And then your best friend or your mom or your dad or your kids said, hi. You didn't need them to say, hi, this is. You know, it's like, oh, how you doing, mom? Or how you doing, dad? Or your grandma or grandpa or whatever it might be, you know, whoever it was. You knew their voice because it was somebody that you spent time with and you wanted to get to know. This is the way we are supposed to be with God. I've spent so much time listening to him. I've heard his voice often enough that when he says do something, I know it's him. Very important for us to be able to get to that way because otherwise we're doing all kinds of fleeces. You know, the Gideon fleece or even Jonathan's fleece. And you know, like I said, is it not, it's apparent that Jonathan never asked God before this, whether he was going to go do it. It was just like, okay, God, this is an opportunity. I'm going to step out in faith. What do you want me to do? And there's times when we have to do that. Where we're just in the middle of something. It's like, okay, God, I think maybe this is a time that you may be saying to do something. Open the door or close the door. Beware of open doors, though, because Satan can open, open, open the doors for you as easily as God can. Okay, just because you have an open door does not mean that it's God opening the door. All right? But when you pray like this, you know, like they, uh, Jonathan's prayer, God, you know, if God says, come up, we're going up. And if they say stay, then we know that God hasn't given them. You know, he gave them a very specific thing. You know, God, if you don't want us to go up there, you, know, you just tell them, to, you tell them to have us stay down here. And again, that would go against nature because here, here's two Hebrew men standing at the bottom of the hill, one with a sword, another one carrying the armor, you know, they're going to go, come on up here. We're going to teach you a lesson. That would be the n natural thing for them to do. Get on, you know, get on up here. We'll, we'll show you upstarts what, <laughs> you know. So we're, we're looking at this, and God has said, and he says that they're, God has given them into our hand if they say to come up. Verse 11, and both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines, Philistines said, behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up here to us, or we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them 
into the, the hand of Israel. You know, I love Jonathan's <laughs> faith. Okay. They're looking at him in derision. Oh, these guys have finally crawled out of their holes. They've shown up. Remember last chapter, these guys are hiding in all the holes and going over the river and, and hiding and burying themselves in the pits and, and all these things. Obviously, the Philistines knew it. They were watching these guys running like chickens, you know, scared rabbits into the, every little hole that they could find. And they're going, hey, look at that. A couple of these Philistines have popped out of their holes. Come on up here. We'll show you. And Jonathan's attitude, let's go up. God's given them to us. It's an amazing thing when you're so sure of what God's got in, in place for you and you go out with total confidence. You know, it's an amazing place where you're so in tune with God and you know you're doing what he wants and everything looks like it's going to go against you and you go, God, I don't know how you're going to win it, but I know this is where I'm supposed to be. I know that you, you're in, in this. And it might be some ministry activity. It might be an activity where you go out and you, and you do whatever it might be, soul win or, or just serving God. And you just know it's what you're supposed to be doing. And here, I love it. Jonathan is so bold. You know, let's go on up. They're ours. <laughs> you know, you know, they're, they're, they're making fun of us, but they're going to see God. This day, Jonathan is basically saying, this day they're going to know. David said the same thing when he went up against Goliath. This day they will know that there's a God in Israel. Jonathan says, basically not quite that bold, but this day they're going to see that there's a God in Israel. And he went up because God had, look at this, he said, look at what he said here. It wasn't that he delivered them into my hand. He's delivered them into the hand of Israel. He knew his place even though God was using him. And this is something we need to be very careful of, that we don't get proud when God uses us. Well, you know what, God, God, you're so good. You're so lucky to have me. Look at, look at all that I've accomplished. And that's not Jonathan's attitude at all here. You know, it's not, you know, look, you know, God's going to deliver it, and I'm going to get this glory. He goes, Israel's going to get glory. And not only Israel, God's going to get glory. That was, that was Gideon's decision. Remember when they getting ready for the battle with 300 men, and God says, well, okay, if you, don't, if you don't trust my word, go down into the camp and listen to what they're saying. And the Midianites were afraid of Gideon. And it's like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> this is, they're, 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 they're in terror. When we stand with God, the enemy is in terror. No matter what the enemy is. Even if it's only the spiritual enemy, the, the demons are afraid of a Christian moving forward with God because they can't stand up against God. Now, they don't fear us in any way, shape, or form, but they fear the God in us. When we start moving with, in faith with God, the demons tremble because they're not afraid of us. We, we can do whatever we want, and they know they, they're not afraid of us. But when we go forward with God, it's like, they see God. Why? Because we're clothed in Christ. We go forward in Christ, and what do they see coming at them? Christ. They don't see me. They don't see you. They don't see anybody else. They see Jesus moving forward into battle. He's already defeated them at the cross. He's already promised that he's going to defeat them and send them into hell. 
They have no doubt that it's going to happen. They don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but they have no doubt that it's going to happen. And when we go into battle with God, all they see is Jesus. And they'll still fight. They're, they're crazy. They fight. <laughs> but they know that they are a defeated enemy. And here Jonathan goes, they're defeated. Even before you're going up the mountain, they're defeated. We've won. God's put them in our hand. They told us to come up. But that means God's given them into our hand. Verse 13, and Jonathan climbed up on his hands, upon his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew, slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within as much as a half acre of land which an ox, yoke of oxen might plow. So they're climbing up, picture this, they're climbing up a hill. It's steep enough that Jonathan seems to be using his hands and his feet to get up this hill. And he's killing people. And his armor bearer says, as, as Jonathan knocks them down with whatever it is that Jonathan's using to knock them down, the armor bearer is plunging a sword or, or a spear or something or an arrow, whatever it might be, into the men that are fallen. As they're climbing up this hill, they're killing Philistines. <laughs> I don't know if there's a path on this. It doesn't really say if there is a path. There's a steep path if he's having to kind of use his arms and, and his feet. And the armor bearer is just kind of, okay, Jonathan, you're knocking him down. I'll, <laughs> I'll finish him off. You keep knocking him down. I'll finish him off. And it says they killed 20 men in a half acre. Now, a half acre is a pretty good-sized piece of area. Not, not huge, not huge, but it's, it's a good-sized piece of, piece of land. And they killed 20 men. In the first, and it says, and the first slaughter... Okay. Apparently, there's going to be more that we don't hear anything about. Okay. This is the first one as they're going up the hill. They kill 20 men. The Philistines are not going to be happy campers here. This is, this is one insignificant Jewish boy, or young man, probably in his 20s, and they can't kill him. And he's killing bunches of them. Well, I said probably some kind of spear or, or cow gourd or cattle gourd. Remember, in the last chapter, they, they sharpened everything they could. Oh, okay. So he's got some very sharp. The armor bearer. The armor bearer's got something sharp. Okay. Might even be a dagger. You know, these guys are knocked down. He could put a dagger in their heart just as easy as a sword. So. After the first one went down, he might have picked up the He might have picked up a sword. Yeah. Verse 15. And there was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked so that it was very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. All right. We had this battle. Jonathan's killing people all over the place. These guys are getting afraid now. I'm really not sure why they're afraid of one man with 20, you know, even though he's killed 20 people, there still seems to be more than them because the multitude's not that far from the garrison. But it says a trembling sh shakes the army. And this literally means that they're, they were afraid, completely fearful of one man. Now, what, what they saw may have been totally something different. 
Okay, God is on their side. Who knows what they saw? Okay, Israel, in, in the establishment of Israel, there were many times where entire companies of Arab people surrendered to two or three uh, Jewish soldiers because they saw an army behind them. Okay, what did people see when they were looking at Jonathan and his armor bearer winning these battles? Who knows? But they are quaking in their boots or their sandals. <laughs> and then there was an earthquake. All right, all of a sudden you thought, you thought everything was going your way. This crazy guy is killing everybody as he's climbing up the hill. And then there's an earthquake. And it says that, verse 16, and the watchmen in Gibeah looked, and all of a sudden, the multitude was melting away. Okay? Now, Saul had it pretty bad. He had 3,000 men that had just, he lost 2,400 men of his people just kind of drifting off. They're looking across the way over, over there, and this army beyond numbers is just drifting away. God has done something here. An earthquake. So they had fallen like in, they're drifting away. Well, it says they were melting away and they were beating down one another. They were fighting each other. Well, no, this literally means they were slaying each other. This wasn't even that they were running. They were, they were fighting each other, which isn't uncommon in the scriptures to see when God moves that the enemy starts fighting each other. When Gideon comes down the hillside, they, they were fighting each other. Here they're fighting each other. We see this oftentimes in the scriptures. Now, whether God causes a confusion in them or, or there's just a, a great fear. Because sometimes when people are feared, they get confused. But if you study different histories, especially in the maritime days, the sailors would end up putting bands across their arms to try to help identify who was who. You know, they would wear a white, everybody would wear a white band on, their, on one arm so that, you know, hopefully you saw their arm before you killed your, killed your buddy from your ship. You know, uh, in the middle of these chaotic battles, fear would take over and people would just start killing anything that moved. They, two guys against the <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> two that we, two that are physical. What, what they saw, what they understood, but God could also put just a straight fear into them. Uh, he did that with Gideon. He did that with other people that, that he just said, okay, we're going to put you terrorized. And if you've ever been in a place where you've had a moment of terror, you're not thinking straight. I've experienced it one time in my life that I had just extreme terror and quickly got over it, but it was a, you get panicked at that point. You, you could do anything, and here, God put terror upon these people, and they're, they're all killing each other. Now, it should be pretty easy to tell the, the Hebrews they didn't have any armor, they didn't have any swords, so if he has a sword in his hand, don't kill him. But they're killing each other. Even today, it's not uncommon for friendly fire to yeah. kill someone because no one's thinking right, and everyone's crazy. Yeah. You're, you're, you're looking to keep yourself alive. And that's what's going on here. I'm going to stay alive. 
I don't know why. I don't know why everybody around me is going. You know why the who? I don't know who's attacking us. I don't know why they're attacking us. All I know is they're they're panicked over here, and that panic sweeps. And this happens all the time. A panic. It takes only one or two people to get panicked, and panic can sweep a large group of people. And here, the entire army is going to get into a panic because of the garrison. <laughs> Two, two men coming up and fighting the garrison. And God. We don't want to discount God. We don't want to discount God in all of this because if it wasn't for God, this probably never would have happened in any way, shape, or form to, to, to panic an entire army. And they're killing each other out. And, and the watchmen are going, uh, don't know what's going on over there, but uh, the army's dispersing. And we seem to, they're, they're in a battle. And they're dispersing. Verse 17. And Saul said unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer was not there. And Saul said to Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of the covenant of the ark of God. And the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. Now, why do you think that last statement was important? That the ark of God was with the children of Israel? Because the Philistines had taken it a while back ago. Yeah. And, gave <laughs> and, and gave it back to them, yes. And they didn't want it, yeah. Yeah, because all the, everywhere it went, natural disasters and plagues you know, swept their cities and all, this, all the major cities that they put it. And, your gods, it? <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and in, it was in the temple of Dagon. Dagon bowed down in front of the altar. So it's, uh, you know, but it, it has that little mention that we're far enough now into history that they'd gotten the ark back. <laughs> All right, just in case we'd forgotten about it coming, coming back a few chapters ago. And it says, okay, everybody, find out, who, find out who's not here. You know, captains, you find out who's not, who's not in your group. Who, who went over there and caused all this chaos? Saul does not have the faith of his son. Okay. I, if, if I had been in Saul's place with the faith of Jonathan, I would have gone, okay, God's doing something over there. Let's get in there and, and, and help finish this off. But Saul's more concerned with who started this. <laughs> you know, who, we're not going to go finish this yet. We want to know who started it all. And I just, and then he's bringing up the ark. Okay, get the ark out. Let's find out what God wants us to do. Again, it's all a lot of game for him. At this point, he knows that God is moving over there. Let's get the ark out. Let's see what, let's see what God wants. And in one sense, yes, I agree with him. He probably should have. But he should have been doing it long before this event. God, what is it you want you to make? Not sitting under the pomegranate tree in, in terror, watching my army disappear. You know, licking my wounds because Samuel has just you know, criticized me for offering sacrifices when I shouldn't, shouldn't have in the first place. You know, he's been licking his wounds and, and wallowing in self-pity. And all of a sudden, he sees God moving. And he's got to go, OK, God, what do you want us to do? You know, hopefully the priests were quick. <laughs> you know, I don't. Uh, but these these priests are not necessarily the the sharpest uh, tacks in the in the woodshed here. Verse 19. And it came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to battle. 
And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great discomfort. Sure. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that was with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over to Beth Avin. All right. This is why I said Saul was doing a show. Okay. He calls for the priests. He says, get the ark out. Let's see what God wants us to do. And as the noise of the battle was increasing and he could hear that they were losing, that they were killing themselves or losing, whatever you want to say, he says, oh, get your hands away from the, from the, uh, the stones and we're just going to go into battle. Okay? He really wasn't concerned with whether God wanted him to. He just wanted to show. He wanted to, yes, let's go do it or no, let's not do it. And he wanted to be able to say, well, yeah, God said don't do it. <laughs> I, I have a reason not to go into battle. The... the, the Thuman and the, uh, the other one that I can't remember the name, huh? Thorin. Thorin and Thuman, yeah. you know, said no, so we're not going in. But he goes, get your hands away from the, you know, we're going into battle. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're being defeated. We're, we're, we're going for it. <laughs> and it says they went in to the battle. And it says, as they came up upon him, it says that every man's sword was against his fellow and there was a great discomfiture. You know, can you imagine going into battle and, and your enemy is fighting each other? Pretty easy battle. Yeah. All I have to do is stand around and watch them. You know, like, oh, good job. You, hey, he's over there. You know, <laughs> you missed <one>. <laughs> <laughs> you know but they're, they're seeing chaos in the camp of the Philistines. They are in complete, utter panic, killing each other. Yeah, well, you know, you, there may be more to that. You know, they probably had been partying and everything, and there may have been some drunkenness involved, and all of a sudden the panic is striking them and all these problems coming out. So, but they come up and they look, and Philistines are fighting each other. And then as they come up, the Hebrews who had gone to the side of the Philistines to work in their camps joined the Israelites. Okay. Now, I'm not sure that I really would have cared if they would have joined me or not because they were turncoats already. And switching sides in the middle of the battle would not make me too, much, too happy. And not only that, but all the people that were hiding in all the rocks and the caves and the, and the pits and everything saw that, oh, the Philistines are losing. Let's, let's join Saul and we'll be, on the, we'll be on the winning side now. You know, we were, we'll just tell them we were always there. Okay. Uh, and this is not an un unusual thing in the middle of a battle, too. People hiding and scared to death all of a sudden see a battle turn, come out of the, come out of the woodwork to, to be on the winning side. Yeah, I, was, I was too afraid to stand and fight, but hey, yeah. I was watching your back. <laughs> the, I was watching your back. Yeah, nobody was going to sneak up on you because I was back there. Uh, nobody was going to get close to you. And they started chasing after them, and the Israelites were chasing them now. And we see that God is working on this battle and the, and, the, and the people are running away and they're moving further south back into where they're supposed to be at Beth, Beth, Beth Avin. 
And verse 24, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eats any food until evening, that I may be avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And when they came into the land, uh, came, and all they of the land came to the wood, and there was honey on the ground. And the people were come to the wood, and behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth for fear of the oath. So basically, Saul had told them that until we win this battle, nobody eats. Now, probably not the wisest thing, even from a human point of view, to say, okay, I don't care how hungry you get where, or how far we chase these people, you're not to eat until we totally destroy them. Not a very wise move at all. And yet, it's going to be something that's going to cause a major problem for the people. They're hungry. Okay? You can't run on an empty stomach. You can't even think much on an empty stomach. And all of a sudden, they're in this place where there's apparently lots of honey. Now, it says it's dropping on the grounds. It's hanging from the trees. I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen that much wild honey anywhere. But it probably is true that there was a place where honey was, you know, the bees were, were swarming and were all around. And there's honey everywhere. And verse 27, But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people the oath. Therefore he put the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honey and put it to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Your father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eats any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father has troubled this land. See, I, I pray you how my eyes have been enlightened because I've tasted a little of this honey. How much more if haply the people had eaten freely of today of the spoil of their enemies which they have found. For had there been not been now as so much a gathering slaughter against the Philistines. And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. And they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord in that they eat with the blood, eat with the blood, and he said, you have transgressed. Roll a great stone upon me this day. All right. Jonathan, we know Jonathan didn't hear his father because he was busy beating, starting the battle. <laughs> and as, he's, as they're chasing the people, he sees honey. He's a little tired. He's hungry. So he automatically just tastes the honey. And it says his eyes were enlightened or he got, he got strength. He was satisfied, and all of a sudden he got invigorated by this. And the people saw him and said, you know, hold it. Your father gave a, gave a very strict charge that we're not to eat. And Jonathan instantly understood, my father has caused problems for our people. Now, we're going to be running a race. We're going to be chasing these people and fighting with no sub substance to us. And... He says, and he goes, you know, my, he's brought trouble on us. See, look at me. I, I, I've, gotten, I'm, I've been energized by this honey. I've been, I've been you know, uh, ready to go. And he goes, how much more if the people had been allowed to eat of the spoils? They would have been, they would have been energized. They, we could have really taken out. Basically, he's saying, we could have taken the Philistines out. 
you know, we'd, we'd have kept up with them and, and we would have made a total slaughter that we wouldn't have to worry about the Philistines for generations. And he goes, there's going to be a great problem. And that's what he says at the end of verse 30. For there had been not been such a great, much greater slaughter among the Philistines. He goes, we would have done so much more if we'd have just been able to eat. You know, if you guys wouldn't. And then they smote the Philistines that day from Mikras to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. They were <laughs> hungry. <laughs> they were tired. And then this little vignette right here at the end of the section, verse 32, and the people flew upon the spoil. They took sheep, oxen, and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. Okay? This is a major violation of the Levitical law. When you slaughtered the animals under Levitical law, you had to hang them up and drain all the blood before you consumed them. Why? Because God said the life of the flesh is in the blood. He says, I don't want you eating the life. I want you to just, the dead carcass fine, but not the blood. And it says they were so hungry. They were like delirious. Yeah. It, it almost sounds like they were eating these almost you know, raw. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, they might have taken time to cook it, but the blood was still in the meat. Okay, which is which is which is a violation to of the Levitical law. But it's, it almost sounds like they're so hungry that they're just they're consuming this this food, you know, raw or even barely cooked. I mean, kind of the way I like my meat. <laughs> uh, not that we buy any meat with blood in it because we they inject it with red dye, but. Uh, but you know they're eating it against the law. They're sinning. Why are they sinning? Well, Jonathan already told them it's Saul's fault that they're sinning indirectly. Now they still should not sin. Again, we've, again, we've talked about this many times. Just because somebody else does something that that kind of makes us do something does not relieve us of the guilt of the sin. Saul, as their leader, had done something that he is going to be accountable for. Okay? He is the one that set them up to be so hungry that they ate things you know, against, the, against the Levitical code. They're still guilty. Okay? They're guilty because they broke the law. Saul set it up. Okay? And this is why we, I keep bringing this up. You know, and I tell parents all the time, you're not responsible for your kids' decisions on things, even if you did everything wrong that led to their bad decision, you're not completely guilty because they're responsible for their decision. Because you can do everything right and still have the kids make bad decisions. They are responsible for their decisions. We are responsible for our decisions. This is one of the problems I have with psychology because they always try to go back and, well, you did this because. You know, your mom, your dad, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather did this, and, you know, and this person did this to you, and this person, so there's just, you had no choice. You did what you just were programmed to do. No, that's not what God says. Yes, they made it more difficult for you to make the right decision. Like Adam and Eve. <laughs> well, Adam and Eve had perfection and still made the wrong decision. Uh, but, you know, the thing we look at is God holds us all personally accountable for our decisions. No matter what excuses we might make. You know, and it's an amazing thing when you look and see some of the most godly people coming out of the most broken, devastated homes 
And sometimes you see the most ungodly, evil people coming out of some of the best homes. You know, why? Because each person is responsible for their decisions. Now, is it easier to come, be righteous out of a righteous home? Obviously. I've been taught how to do things right. I was taught how to follow God. I was taught how to pray. I was taught what right and wrong was. But I'm still accountable for my decisions. Same thing on, the, on the somebody that has a totally wicked background. You know, prostitution, drugs, and alcohol, and everything else running rampant in their, in their family, and they turn out to be a righteous person. Because God works on their heart, and they say, yes, I'm going to do what's right. You know, here the people are making a bad decision. Saul has got some responsibility. He's the king. He's the one that set it up. But they ultimately have the, the, to bear the responsibility. They know the rules. They know that that even, doesn't matter that they're devastatingly hungry. <laughs> and star, you know, they're going to say starving. They're not starving, obviously. It's only been one day. It's only been one day of hard labor. They're not starving. Kind of reminds me of Jacob's brother coming in out of the field saying, I'm starving to death. I haven't eaten all day long. You know, I, you know I, am, I am going to die because I'm so hungry. All right, Esau, it's only been, you probably ate breakfast this morning. You've only been gone for 12 hours hunting. You're not going to die. This is where the people are right now. We've been, we've been chasing this enemy all day long. We've been, we've been running for 12 hours. We're just so hungry. You know, they knew better. They knew better, and they knew what they were doing was wrong. Here, but there was food. They, they landed on it like a bunch of locusts on the grain field you know, it's, and devoured it. And Saul's going, you know, what is going on here? You know, what is going on? What, <laughs> you know, the people are sinning. Now, he's not taking any blame for this at all, other than he's now king, and he goes, oh, these are my people that are sinning. And he says, you know, let's see where they leave off. Yeah, verse 33. Yeah, behold, the people sin against the Lord in that they eat the blood. And he says, we have transgressed, roll a great stone on me this day. All right. Uh, he kind of recognizes in one sense he's king and he's responsible for his people. He says, I, I need to die. God's going to judge me anyway. I might as well judge. Just, 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 just get a good big stone and crush me. Uh, yeah. This is one of the things you see when people are living a lifestyle of sin. They get overly critical of the mistakes that are made and want to attack. You know, remember when Nathan gives David the story of the man who steals the sheep from the, from the woman? David goes, well, he deserves to die. Well, that's not what the law said. The law said he needed to give him four sheep and you know, you know, give him one back and five more, five more besides. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't death for taking a sheep. It was restore plus 20%. You know, so, but here we see Saul was going, you know, heck, just, just kill me. You know, this is so bad, I just, I just need to die. Just roll a stone over me. But he does take some action. I mean, he does take some actions. Uh, and Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring hither every man his oxen and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat and sin not against the Lord in eating of the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox that, he, that night and slew them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord the same was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. So Saul said to the priest, get out there. Tell these people to get, get these animals here and let the, let the Levites kill them. Let the priests kill them 
and basically drain the blood. And then they can eat, you know, then they can eat. And I love that here that Saul built an altar. Now, remember, he'd been anointed and he was pre-prophesying and teaching, but he never built an altar. Here he says, okay, now's the time. We're going to build an altar. We're going to, you know, I'm not just worshiping the, the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to build an altar here and we're going to, you know, he's looking at, build, you know, offer sin sacrifices. You know, let's, let's get the people covered. Let's get them protected because he knows the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin has been very adequately presented over and over again. Korah and his fellows got swallowed by the ground. Adab and Abihu got burnt, burnt to a crisp doing things their way. You know, over and over, he's seen, the, he's seen things that God says, I'm going to judge. The people were worshiping idols, and God sent serpents into them to, to kill them. Saul knows that he's got to act quickly to stay the hand of God, and he builds an altar. And he has a, the priest offering sacrifices for the people. So Saul does some things right. I mean, Saul is not a completely evil man at this point yet. He's still doing a lot of show. He's still doing a lot of play acting. But he has not completely gone over to the other side, as he will later on. He's, he's doing the, the, the show, and there's enough reality. And this is the sad thing so many times with so many Christians. We play at being a Christian, and then sometimes we're really walking with God, and then we kind of play at it, and then we walk with God. We need to be walking with God and not worrying about the play acting. When we sin, when we fail, we repent and we, we come back to God, but we need to be following him in a very strong way and not doing this little plays, you know, all the different acting and playing that goes on. Because the church is full of people, and the world will call them hypocrites. I'm not sure I like that term necessarily because we all fail so often. The hypocrite is somebody who knows that they're doing wrong, in my opinion, and, and just blatantly says, I don't care. I'm going to live this lifestyle that's contrary to God. Now, sometimes we as a Christians will do that to a degree, but we have that Holy Spirit conviction in us saying, you better get your life right. You're, you're going the wrong way, which is why I've said so often, if you can sin without being convicted that you're sinning, then you need to look and say, God, am I really your child? Because God chastens his children. When we're sinning, we better be convicted or we need to be looking seriously at, God, am I yours? Am I really yours? If I can, if I can do all these things and not have a problem with it, I've got a, a big problem in on being, knowing whether I'm his or not. Not that I lost it because I've never had it. Okay, because when I'm his... He convicts, and, I, and I've said this, and I've heard other people say, well, I just can't get away with anything. Anytime I do something, God is right there poking me in the side, telling me to not do, not do this. And I understand that statement. You know, all right, God, I thought I wanted to do this, God, and you just won't let me, you just won't let me enjoy this or have any fun with it. And God says, you know, here we see Saul kind of play acting, I think. You know, he built an altar. I think in one side of him, though, it's not just play acting at this point. He says, you know, he's he's, I think he's trying to save his own life. You know, God, we're, we're going to repent to you because, uh, you know, you might hold me accountable for my people. And if nothing else, you may kill a lot of my people. But you're going to hold me accountable because he knows that leaders have been held accountable for their, for their people. Yeah, it's another show, I guess. Yeah, well... I don't know. I don't know. I'm not really willing to say it's completely show in this. I think there may have been some reality in this one. 
and it could have just been show, but I think there's some reality on it. Uh, the people have sinned. We need, to, we need to get an altar set up. We need to get some sacrifices made. Uh, I need them to get straight so I don't lose them. And, you know, by the way, God might, might blame me for this, and I don't want to lose my life either. So I think there's some conviction here. I think there's some understanding that there's been a lot of wrong going on. All right. We're going to leave there at verse 35. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to walk in faith, to step forward and, and seek you in all that we do. Help us not to be play actors and to just walk with you and, and serve you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.